Welcome to 340B Insight from 340B Health. Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome back to 340B Insight, the podcast about the 340B drug pricing program. I'm David Glendinning with 340B Health. Happy New Year to all our listeners. We hope you had a safe and enjoyable end to your 2021, and we are glad to be back to launch Season 3 of our podcast with our first episode of 2022. Our guest today is Dr. Ellen Eaton, an infectious disease specialist with the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Eaton is a clinical professor who also works at UAB's clinic for patients with HIV-AIDS, known as the 1917 Clinic. Her health system relies on 340B savings to help fund the clinic's work, and we wanted to learn more about some of the innovative ways UAB applies those savings to help improve patient health outcomes. But before we go to that interview, let's take a minute to cover some of the latest news about 340B. The final week of December saw a big development in the dispute over 340B contract pharmacies. On December 28th, the federal government announced that it is appealing a major decision from a court in Washington, D.C. on this issue. The court had said the 340B law does not categorically prohibit drug companies from imposing restrictions or conditions on 340B pricing for drugs dispensed at contract pharmacies. Now government attorneys are asking an appeals court to reverse that decision. That's good news for the more than 850 safety net hospitals that sent a letter to the Health and Human Services Secretary calling for HHS to take this action. Check out the show notes to get up to speed on the litigation. Now for today's feature interview with Dr. Ellen Eaton with the University of Alabama at Birmingham and UAB's 1917 clinic. About 1.2 million people in the U.S. have HIV, and the southern region of the nation continues to have the highest rates of new diagnoses. The CDC estimates half of all new cases of HIV in the U.S. each year occur in the South. In this environment, HIV AIDS clinics, such as UAB's, are working to care for all those living with the disease, including by addressing some of the social determinants of health that affect patients. Our own Miles Goldman sat down with Dr. Eaton to discuss how the UAB 1917 clinic directs 340B savings toward social determinants, including patients' access to housing. Let's hear that conversation. Thank you, David. I'm joined by Dr. Ellen Eden from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Welcome to 340B Insight, Ellen. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we have the opportunity to speak with you about the work UAB Medicine and the 1917 Clinic are doing with 340B and caring for patients living with HIV. I I saw you present at the 340B Coalition Conference uh, about a year ago, and I'm excited to learn more about the Temporary Housing Partnership Program. But first, tell us about UAB Medicine and the 1917 Clinic. 
We serve a population of about 3,500 patients living with HIV. Although we're located in Birmingham, Alabama, we really serve a pretty large catchment area. So we have patients from the greater Jefferson County area, and our patients drive an average of 30 minutes to get to us. So we have patients from across Alabama. I have a patient from Georgia and really across the Deep South. Many of our patients are African-American, and many of them live below the federal poverty level. So we do see a lot of the social determinants of health and structures that have limited their access to ideal HIV outcomes that you might see in a more urban or socioeconomically advantaged part of the U.S. And that's really how this project came to be, is just acknowledging that housing insecurity is a big challenge for many of our patients. Let's talk about what role does 340B have in care for patients with HIV? 340B is really transformational for our clinic. There are a number of wraparound services that we are able to provide for both the HIV, but also the chronic comorbidities that our patients are living with and social services. We would not be able to provide these comprehensive services for our patients without 340B funding. So a couple of examples, you know, in addition to HIV-related care, counseling on medication adherence, pharmacists who are trained to educate our patient population, we also have things like diabetic wound care for our patients. You know, as many patients in the Deep South, our patients struggle with obesity, diabetes, chronic wounds. We're able to provide access to care for those diseases, which certainly is cost-effective in terms of keeping them out of the hospital, out of emergency departments, out of wound care specialty clinics. And then on a personal level, I always like to share about our opioid treatment clinic, which I lead. It is an integrated care clinic within the HIV clinic where we provide opioid use disorder treatment for patients living with HIV and substance use disorder. So our biggest challenge right now is fentanyl. And we have about 50 to 60 patients who are receiving buprenorphine for that clinic. And it's really been, as I mentioned, miraculous for them. We have patients who have been on buprenorphine now for a couple of years. The clinic started in 2019. We have patients who are now living, thriving, have jobs, have stable relationships. Many of them have reconciled with family members that they were estranged with for years. So it's really been a dramatic change. And these services are, for the most part, provided through 340B funding. There's a lot of discussion today in healthcare about the social determinants of health. How do social determinants of health affect patients living with HIV AIDS? These issues are really deeply intertwined and and hard to disentangle. For example, for my patients who don't have stable housing, they also don't have a stable place to store their medications. They may miss their medications. They may then have HIV viremia, meaning their viral load levels increase, and then they're much more likely to transmit to their sexual partners, their, their children if they're pregnant, If they're using substances, maybe the networks that they're using drugs with are more likely to experience new HIV cases. And you can see how those social determinants of health, access to stable housing, access to medications, access to physicians, then sets off this cascade of HIV transmission that is all preventable. It's easier said than done, right, with these structural barriers. But absolutely, the social determinants of health run deep and are are huge obstacles to our patients. I'm glad you mentioned housing. Tell me a little bit more about why having stable housing is so important to patients with HIV. You know, when I think of housing, so many of us take it for granted, but it is not just 
physical stability. It is really social stability. It is structure. For our patients who do not have a safe place to stay, many of them spend much of their day looking for a safe place to rest, looking for a meal, really survival skills. How did the 1917 clinic connect patients with temporary housing? This initiative started with a needs assessment led by some of our social work champions. And what they were doing was focusing in on this subset of patients who have been unable to reach HIV suppression, meaning their viral load has stayed high despite us providing these really effective, safe medications. And our social workers looked at this subset of patients and said, what are they missing? And Overwhelmingly, they did not have stable housing. And in addition to this observation, our social workers and our clinicians are well-versed with the literature that shows that housing instability has detrimental effects on HIV health outcomes and other outcomes. And so our social workers really got together and developed a strategy to present to leadership uh, of how to pilot a program that would allow us to provide housing resources and utilize 340B funds to offset the costs. And I want to start by saying our clinic leadership was very thoughtful about this approach. They agreed that we needed to start working towards housing as an additional social service we provide for our patients. But they also realized that we did not want to enter the housing business. There are many nonprofits and aid service organizations in our area who are experts in housing. So rather than saying, let's us as a clinic develop our own housing shop, we decided to work with our community partners and use some of these resources we have to offset set the costs and help them bolster their underlying housing resources. And so we partnered with two local organizations and we talked about various tiers of services that may be needed. Some patients just need rental assistance for a couple of months to get back on their feet. They're in between jobs, they're going to be evicted, and obviously the most cost-effective way to keep them housed is to just assist with rental assistance. And for other Patients, we worked with our leadership to identify partners who have affordable housing. There may be group home options. There may be options for patients in substance use recovery, so recovery programs. So in that sense, we're partnering with agencies who specialize in housing for those with alcohol use disorder, heroin use disorder, a lot of the things that we're seeing in our clinic. And it's really been a beautiful relationship. And once the patient is established in stable housing, Are there other ways the 1917 clinic continues to stay in touch with the patient? Absolutely. So once individuals have been enrolled in our program, they are assigned a social worker both at the community partner site who's providing housing, and then certainly they remain in touch with their 1917 clinic social work provider. And and the goal of that is is really twofold. We want to make sure that they have what they need in terms of housing, um, and I can talk a little bit more about that next. Um, But then the social worker at 1917 school is there to ensure that they have what they need to keep their HIV virus in check. And as I mentioned, the goal for longitudinal follow-up on the housing front, we also have to be mindful of things that we take advantage of, things like a microwave, utensils, a mattress, acknowledging that once you have four walls around you, you still may not have, and you, you certainly don't have what you need to provide essential food for yourself. And we're also starting to focus on some job training and other essential skills as a future goal for our project. 
We realized that to make this project sustainable, we need to give our clients some additional skill sets around job training, um, parenting skills, um, finance classes. Many of our patients are just starting to get their first job, and they don't really have any understanding of how to save, how not to overdraw their account. These are skills that are really important to making this program sustainable and allowing our patients to really reach their full potential, get their own job ultimately so that they can continue to provide housing for themselves upon completion of this program. How does 340B support the program and and some of the services we've been talking about? Really, the 340B services are critical to this program. And yeah, I want to acknowledge, you know, before developing this program, our leadership reached out to their contacts to ensure that what we were proposing would be allowable per 340B and and came away with really encouragement and um, some clear guidelines on how to use 340B resources to provide these essential housing resources for our patients. So that's also been a really helpful partnership. I mentioned the partnership with community partners and now also with with HRSA and other agencies. And certainly getting specific details around 340B has been helpful for us because I think a lot of programs don't think outside of the box when they're thinking of how to utilize resources. We know that 340B services are, are really the spirit of this funding is to reach the most vulnerable patients, help them achieve health outcomes, keep them out of the hospital. And so I, I you know, I think our, our entire group would tell you without 340B funding, we would not be able to provide these services for our patients. And we've seen really great HIV outcomes. Over 75% of our patients are virally suppressed. Patients are, for the most part, staying in HIV care. They're continuing to come to their provider. We've just provided an additional touch point, an additional warm hug, warm handshake, warm touch point for these patients to connect to both our social work staff, our medical providers, and now our housing partners in the community, really this robust safety net. We also do frequent surveys and assessments, which I would encourage people to do with any of their 340B programs, asking the patients What's working? What's not? We save their quotes, you know, we get their permission, obviously, but we save their quotes and we share it with our community partners. You know, this patient expressed that this one small offer that you gave them, this one small gesture really went a long way. And they felt so inspired that they're now coming back to clinic every month and they haven't missed their medication since then. That's the kind of feedback that we're getting from patients. The successful outcomes you mentioned earlier and now hearing patient feedback makes me think, is there a, is there a patient story that, that comes to mind? You know, we've had several really great stories of success, both in terms of housing and job stability and medical outcomes. And a few patients who in a quick period of time were able to reach all of their goals, whether it was housing or career related or medical. And one of them is a patient I'll just call Linda, which is, is not her real name, but Linda has been living with substance use since she was in her 20s. She had a traumatic experience and self-medicated with pills and then eventually needles and, and was using heroin for for really decades, lost custody of her children, was estranged from her family, was living with physically abusive men. 
really for survival. She did not have an income for many years. And she tells us that her HIV diagnosis was was actually life-changing in a good sense. I just saw her this week in clinic and she reminded me, you know, so many people say their HIV diagnosis is a death sentence, but I didn't start living until I was diagnosed with HIV. And when I asked her to, to elaborate on that, she said, getting a diagnosis, being referred to our clinic, being referred to housing, allowed her more security and independence than she's had for decades. She's now in her early 50s. And in the two years since she's been in care in our clinic, she has gotten to recovery. She is on long-term opioid agonist therapy. She has had two jobs and then left her job for a, a graduate degree. So she's now in school. She has her own housing. She is paying her own rent. She's in a stable relationship. She's reconnected with her children who she was estranged from. Most importantly, she has confidence. She walks in the door and she will tell you that her life has just begun and she's doing great things. And it's one of the stories that we say in our clinic, this is our why. This is our why. This is why we come in because she has hit all those goals, you know, housing, career, even in terms of her HIV outcomes, her virus has been suppressed. Her chronic medical illnesses are under control, and she really has all of the promise of a full and normal life expectancy at this point. We anticipate that she will live, which, you know, was unheard of 20, 30 years ago, but we anticipate she will have a normal life expectancy, and she's a productive member of society, and she has a confidence that we certainly did not see when she walked in our doors a few years ago. She's, so she's one of our great poster children for this project. I want to bring this now full circle What effect do you think addressing housing needs through programs uh, such as such as the one at 1917 Clinic can have on meeting the goals to end the HIV AIDS epidemic over the next decade? I, I know you referred to ending the epidemic a little earlier. This is a really important question, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think early in the epidemic, we focused so much, and rightfully so, on HIV prevention and HIV treatments and and vaccines, which we're still working to optimize all of these pharmacotherapies. But in recent years, we've realized the patients that are falling through the cracks are those who can't even physically get to the clinic to get these life-saving medications. Um, They're the patients who don't have a car, who don't have a house, who live out in a rural community and no public transit to to really get to healthcare. And addressing all of these issues has really come to the forefront of ending the HIV epidemic. And some of the work I've done on the research side, even working with groups like the NIH and SAMHSA and CDC, there is an increasing interest on identifying and implementing very common sense approaches to these social determinants of health if we are to end the epidemic. And I'll take it one step further. There's so many parallels between the opioid epidemic and even the hepatitis C epidemic. These same barriers, these social determinants of health are critical to ending all these syndemics. You know, what's working for my patients in my opioid treatment clinic is also helping their HIV. And that's the fact that we can get them taxi vouchers to get them to clinic. We can use telehealth services if their car broke down or was stolen. Um, We can get them on the phone and, and check in on them, see how their meds are going. We can put in a prescription refill to their local pharmacy so they don't miss, you know, a week, a month of treatment so that their virus doesn't um, get out of control and they transmit to their partners, um, unborn children, um, other, you know, spread throughout their community. So yes, I think this housing as healthcare is a really important notion for not just HIV, but many other public health crises that we're dealing with. 
Ellen, it's been great to hear about all the successes UAB Medicine and the 1917 Clinic are having with using 340B to provide that community-tailored care for patients living with HIV. Thank you for taking the time to share the details with us, and we wish you and the team continued success moving forward with this program. Thank you so much for your attention to such an important topic. Our thanks again to Dr. Ellen Eaton for discussing such an important topic and for sharing such uplifting stories of improved patient health. We are proud to see how dedicated providers such as Ellen and health systems such as UAB are using 340B savings to help further their patient care missions. We look forward to the day when we can say the HIV AIDS epidemic is over. In the meantime, we all take inspiration from the story of Linda and all the patients who can say that their lives are just beginning. We want to hear from you about how 340B is helping your patient care mission. This is the first of what will be a full season of the podcast in 2022, so please keep those episode ideas coming. You can email us at podcast at 340Bhealth.org. We'll be back in a few weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening, and be well. Thanks for listening to 340B Insight. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at 340bpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at 340B Health and submit a question or idea to the show by emailing us at podcast at 340bhealth.org.